Today we are in Romans chapter 5. And before we start, I'm going to pause and pray more for my sake than for yours, but let's pray. Father, this time we again want it to be helpful in our understanding of you and not just the information that Paul is trying to relate, but how that information helps us. And so I ask that you would help me to be able to uncover these things and present them clearly. I pray that our time will be useful for our practical lives as well as our understanding of this book and how powerful the truths are that are in it. So bless this time, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. That's funny. So we're in Romans 5, so if you want, turn there. Now, Romans 5 is actually, there's a a whole subject matter that's taking place, and it covers pretty clearly chapters 5 through 8. So 5 through 8 is really dealing with a specific topic and a subject, and it's kind of Paul builds on it, and he's going to then answer some questions, and it's divided pretty clearly. Chapter 5 and 6 pretty much divide clearly. Chapter 7, 1 through 8, 11 is really one specific topic that Paul is going to be talking about, so we're going to try and cover that in one uh, setting. And then the rest of chapter 8, 12 through 30, he kind of deals with some of the arguments and their conclusion. And then 31 and 39, verses 31 and 39, he celebrates that conclusion uh, as he's bringing all these things to bear. But right now, what, what's difficult is to just, okay, we're going to do chapter 5, But chapter 5 goes right into chapter 6, and chapter 6 rolls into chapter 7, but we can't cover, I can't cover them all in one sitting, and you wouldn't want to sit here while I did. And so we're going to have to break it up, but I'm going to have to be going back and kind of talking about some of the things a little bit so that we can uncover it. And even here where he says, therefore, in verse 1, Therefore, means we're going to stand and look back at all the things that he's been talking to us about from chapters 1 through 4 up to this point. And he's going to then start to unravel some things and some points that he wants to, to bring about. And really, there is this understanding, a constant refrain that we're going to see take place through these chapters. And it's really the Christology, the study of the person and work of Christ and how that shows up in our lives. Sorry, the coffee, it's still hot. I have to drink it. Um, And one of the things that we're going to see as it's taking place is this frame of in Christ through Jesus. And it shows up in kind of different wording, but... It's basically in Christ, and it's through Jesus. And it's purposefully done this way because in Christ, Christ, need the T there, in Christ, in Chris, who's Chris? 
in Christ has to do with the Jewish theme that he's been talking about, this covenant faithfulness, the Messiah, the one who God has anointed, who has come from this lineage in Christ, the King, the Messiah, but through Jesus is the person, the Jesus of Nazareth, the human being. And yeah, they're one person, but he's bringing about the identity. And this is the Christology that he's talking about. And just quickly kind of going through these chapters and Chapter 5, verse 11, it says, We also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we have now received reconciliation. So we boast in God through Jesus. Verse 21, 521, So also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, it's through Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 6, verse 11, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So there's that theme, in and through. This is kind of happening over and over again. Chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then in chapter 7, verse 25, thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ our Lord. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 11 is all kind of dealing with the Christology, but specifically in verse 29, it says, For those who God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. To be conformed to the image of his Son is to be basically in Christ Jesus. Verse 39 of chapter 8, Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so through these chapters, we're seeing this picture of what Christ means, how we are in Christ and what has been done in and through Jesus Christ. And now not only is it being done in Christ, but it's also going to be done through us. And we're going to uncover that as that time goes on. And so chapter 5 to 8, the overarching theme, the narrative is the result of what it is to be the people who benefit from the work of Jesus. We are the people who benefit from the work in Jesus by being in Christ. Paul has set up his argument that Abraham has this one covenant family that God has given him. They are created in Christ by Christ's death and resurrection, both from Jews and Gentiles alike. And these chapters, he's basically stating that this family that is in Christ is the new humanity, the new and real humanity that the thing that God wanted to create in the very beginning from Adam and Eve has now been done in Christ. How? How did he do this? Did he abolish the law? No, not by abolishing the old covenant, but rather by fulfilling it. This means a new creation, a new covenant. And these ideas of new creation and new covenant go hand in hand. We see it throughout Paul's writings. Probably the most familiar is 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Alex, do you have a question? Oh, okay. 
<laughs> like I didn't want to ignore you. Okay, so it's this new creation that takes place through the new covenant that has been established by Jesus. And so that's what Paul has been building and leading us to. Because God, by his spirit, is dealing with sin in the in sin with the death for his people through, again, Jesus, through them, so that the world can be now vindicated and established for the last day. God has dealt with sin through Jesus, and he's unfolding that. We saw that in chapter 3. And he's leading on to this, and it's going to conclude in in chapter 8, verse 30, where he says, those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Notice that he doesn't say he justified, then he sanctified, then he glorified, because that's how people break the book of Romans up. They're going to use this portion to say it's talking about the sanctification. But we see Paul kind of deals with sanctification. It seems to be the process that God does through his spirit in his people. In other words, just being a part of this family God works in us through his spirit and brings us to this glorification. But also understanding that those who he predestined, the predestination is taking us, we think, to a certain place, but it's taking us to the promise of God from the foundations, the beginning. And one of the things we're going to see here is he's going to take us to Adam. He's going to take us to Abraham. It's going to take us to Moses, and he's going to end us with Christ. And so those are kind of the the line that we're going to be following as we continue in this chapter. Remember, again, that this is supposed to be a family that God has brought, but it's not through the lineage or the ethnicity of Israel. Not everyone who is circumcised, he said in chapter 20, or chapter 2, verse 25, I think, not everyone who is circumcised is Israel, but there are those who keep the law in their hearts. How can that be? That thought is growing and now standing back, he says, therefore, verse 1 through 5, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. And so as he stands back and he says, therefore, look at all these things. He says, we have been justified through faith. Justified means the judge has ruled in our favor. We are now okay. We are now a part of that covenant family that God has established. We have been justified through faith. And remember, faith always requires something. You don't have faith in faith. We have faith in Jesus Christ, we have that faith. We have been justified through faith in Christ, that faith in Jesus Christ. We've been justified through faith. We have peace with God. And 
this peace with God is basically we are now claiming the blessing of being God's covenant people. That's what it means. It doesn't mean, oh, I feel so peaceful right now. Okay, the peace of God isn't a feeling. Well, I don't have the peace of God in my life. That's not, you know, and we think of it, yeah, I'm just calm and, you know, everything's, you know, sedated and the candles are lit and the music is gentle. Yeah, I have peace with God. It's not a feeling, it's a position. We have peace with God and what he is again saying, we claim the blessing of being the covenant people of God. Remember, God made an agreement with Abraham and said, through you I will bless all the nations. And we talked about last time how God is the one who walked through the sacrifices. Only God, he fulfilled both Abraham's part and God's part. Well, we have peace with God because now we are in that same position that Abraham was. We have peace because we know we belong to this covenant. And if God has made the agreement, God has made the covenant, how sure is it? It's sure. He's the one who's established this. And so that's where we have peace. That is why we have peace. Okay, with God, again, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now, interesting, he says the word boast here because he's used the word boast twice before. He used it in chapter 2, verse 17, and chapter 3, verse 27, and they were both in a negative way, but it is the same word. If you have another translation that translates it rejoice, it's not an accurate translation because it has to do with boasting, but it's a different kind of boasting. In chapter 3, 27, he says, where then is boasting? It is excluded. It's shut down. You can't boast because you keep the law. And remember, what was the law in the Hebrew mind? It was three things that we talked about. Keeping the law or the Torah. Law is going to write Torah. One is the circumcision. The other was the Sabbath. And the third one was the dietary laws, the purity laws. That was their law. You can't boast because you did those things. It's excluded. Why? Because the law came after the covenant. Remember, Abraham was before Moses. So you can't boast in that. The covenant comes before the law. But now he's telling us that we can boast. But this boast is isn't negative, it's positive. This is in, again, the place where we stand secure. This is our confidence. It's not in our ethnicity. It's not in the pride because we keep the law of who we are. It's not in what we've done. It is looking at what God has done in Christ. And so we boast in what God has done. Now we have a reason to boast, but it's not in ourselves, it's in God. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now what is the glory of God? It is the glory that Adam was to have in bearing God's image. We've talked about this before. What is the glory of God? And what was man supposed to do? How does man glorify God? Well, he was created in God's image, and so it was the image bearing that 
Adam had and he was supposed to give to the world. It is the glory which Adam lost by worshiping the creature rather than the creator. It is the dominion over God's creation. That's what God intended for man, to rule over all of the creation. That's what he set Adam up to do. Adam lost that glory. And so that's the intention. And so now when he talks about we have hope in the glory of God, it's talking about we have hope to regain the position that was lost by Adam. Okay, and we see the fulfillment of that in Jesus, right? In Philippians 2, we see that Jesus has been exalted above everything. Every knee will bow in heaven and in earth. He has been given dominion over all these things. Colossians chapter 1, he is the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn means preeminence. He is the one who is preferred above all creation. He is taking back the role of the glory of God the dominion over the world. And so we now are back in position because of what Jesus did. This means that the world is a different place. It might look the same. It's still got smog and it's still got the same kind of people, but it is a different place because now a human being is at the helm of the cosmos. What did Jesus say after the resurrection? All power, all authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. There is someone in charge and it is a person. It is Jesus. A human being is now at the helm. Is that trippy? that kind of like, whoa. Well, we want to make sure it's the right human being, right? <laughs> and fortunately it is but which is what God intended from the beginning. And now God has set up this new creation. He has brought things back the way they are supposed to be, but he is going to use this person to bring about this new work and he's doing it through us, through his people, through the church. And so we see that he is setting these things up and that's what it is. We have hope in the glory of God. What does that mean? We have hope in what God has done now in Christ by putting him in the place of dominion over all the earth. Okay, so it's not just like the light of God shining somewhere. We have hope in that God is glorious. No, we have hope in the glory of God that God has once again established what was intended for humanity through Jesus Christ. That is the glory of God that he's talking about. That is the intention. And and then he goes there from there, verse three, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Don't you hate those verses? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Our sufferings, because we are at tension with this creation that is around us. There is, we are out of sync with this new world that God is establishing. And so God has a plan to, again, bring about his kingdom through the person of Jesus Christ, but the world is not there yet. And so because of that, being out of joint, there is the tension and we find ourselves caught up in that. And so there was, at this time, a lot of persecution going. 
There still is, especially in Iraq and other places where Christians are still being put to death because they are followers of Christ. And so the world is not yet in sync with what God is doing. And so that produces suffering. But you see, that is why we take hope. We can hope also in these things. Not only so, we glory in our sufferings. Why? Because we know that it's telling us that God is doing something. Even though it's not right, it is the work of God and it's producing the eternal work in our lives, perseverance and character. And that's what James tells us as well. And so we see that this has a purpose, that it's not without reason. There's a reason that there is suffering. There's a reason that we go through the persecutions. It's not without purpose. And he goes on, he says, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, God's love has been poured out. There's a lot of debate as whether if this is our love for God or God's love for us. And it seems to be that it is our love for God. At least that's what Augustine thought, that's what N.T. Wright thinks, and a few others that seems to believe that it is because God's love that has been in our hearts is now being poured out from our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In other words, God has given us his Holy Spirit so that his love can be poured out of our lives. That's kind of the intention. So it's not just God's poured his love into us through the Holy Spirit and we just bask into it. No, God has given us his Holy Spirit and from us now the love of God is being poured out. Just a way of looking at it that kind of gives a little bit of perspective in what's supposed to be taking place in our role in all of this especially in the idea of the dominion and what God is doing. Because when we think of dominion, at least when I think of dominion, I think of dominating, being over and controlling. But how did God dominate? It was through love, right? I, your Lord, wash your feet. I'm an example for you. Here in his love, not that we love God, but he loved us and gave himself for us. The son to be that propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sin. And so this is what love of God looks like. This is what dominion looks like. It's God's love poured out of our hearts. It's been given to us by his Holy Spirit. And so we see it start to take shape. And his Holy Spirit has been given to us. And in these chapters, the Holy Spirit starts to come up and take this role. It's now taking shape. And, and so we see that there's obedience that comes through faith. We've seen that faith is in this one God. Remember the, the Shema of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Well, he, he's kind of still building on that theme. Okay, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. In chapter 1, verse 5, he said, obedience that comes through faith. Faith in, again, the person of Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 20, it says, Faith in the one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And what what are we supposed to do? We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so here he's kind of fulfilling that. The love of God that is coming out of our hearts is fulfilling this thing. You see, the Shema of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's where Paul is taking us. He took us there through chapter 1, chapter 3. He just takes chapters to do these things. But he's really unfolding the fact that our obedience in the one God now produces the love for that one God. And that's what he's taking place. Paul is working with that central Jewish tradition, not just hey, isn't it grand to be a Christian? Ain't it grand? Isn't there a song or something like that? Um, You are the true covenant people of God and the blessing of Israel belongs to you. The true Shammah people, the people who now declare this truth about who God is and that true people of peace. We get to take hold of those things. These verses are laying out the themes of peace with God, glory, suffering, endurance, hope, and love, which again we see repeated at the end in chapter 8, verse 31 through 39. All those things get repeated because Paul is developing this through these chapters. He's going to develop it even further now in verses 6 through 11. All the things he's just talked about, he's going to now talk about it, but a little bit louder. He wants to make it a little bit more impactful. And so in verse 6, he says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only in this, so, but all, we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And so he continues to build this up. Now it is God's love for his people. We start to see our love for God, and now we're going to see God's love for his people. And he says, at just the right time, What does he mean by that? At the right time. Well, when would be the wrong time? Remember again that we talked about just in the the Hebrew mind how things were playing out from the creation God. We saw that God established a covenant, but they fell into sin, exile. Then the law of Moses was given, and then they thought by keeping the law that they would be the ones to lead or usher in this new kingdom. And so in their mind, the right time was when they were no longer in exile, when they would usher in this new kingdom. But Paul is saying, no, at the right time, and the right time was in Christ. It wasn't at the end of the ages that they had thought, at the right time, in the person of Jesus, right here in the middle of it all, at this time, God is establishing it. In our present condition, while we were still sinners is when God establishes. In other words, we didn't get out of exile and then God gave us this. No, when we were still in this position at the right time, when we were still in this exile condition, that's when God shows up. When we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't wait for us to get our act together together. 
He didn't wait for the end when they would finally say, yeah, we've got things together. We're going to usher in this. No, it was at the right time. It was when you were powerless, when you were still ungodly, when you were still a sinner. At the right time, that's when he shows up. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love. His love for us. This again is the covenant theme. It's the demonstration of God's love. Remember, God's the one who made the agreement with Abraham. His love. He's the one who established it. It was by his love that he did these things. And so he did this for us while we were sinners. Christ died for us. And what he's doing is telling us that if we were in this condition, if we were still in exile, if we were still lost, and that's when God shows up, then how much more is he going to do for us now? How much more will he do for us that we've made this decision? How much more is he going to show up in our lives and be there for us so that he demonstrates this love for us much more now. In fact, that's what he says in verse 9. Being justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? If God has done this extraordinary thing, then surely he's going to complete the process. Wrath has been dealt with by Christ. It's kind of like if you are working out. I don't know if anyone does, you know. But you're, say you're running or you're bicycling, you know, you're, you're on that trail and you go up the hill and then you make it to the top and then you get to go down. That's kind of where we find ourselves. Okay, Christ has gotten us here. The rest he's going to see us through. It, it's much more so. You know, when you make it to the top of the hill on the bike, downhill's easy. The bike does the work. You get to just kind of, I don't have to pedal. I just get to enjoy it, right? Well, that's where we find ourselves now. Christ has done the work when we were yet sinners. He's brought us to the top of the hill, and now we get to go down. And he's dealt with the wrath by Jesus Christ. And once again, he talks about We also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, by the Spirit, in the midst of pain and suffering, the creator of the world is our God. In the middle of all this, God has brought us through. He is our God. The God who made the covenant with Abraham is our God. He's the one who's made the agreement and he's the one who's going to see us through. And verse 12 through 21, he goes on, he says, therefore, there's another therefore. So he just said all this and now he's going to continue. He wants to get a hold of the view that we've just been looking at. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death reigned through sin, and in the same way, death came to all people because all sinned. And then it kind of stops. It seems like he's supposed to go on saying something else, and then he kind of stops and he says, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam 
to the time of Moses, even over those who did not who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. And, and so Paul is breaking a statement, but he's got to break it down first so that we get the grasp of what he's trying to say. And so he continues, verse 15, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if the trespass of the one man death reigned through the one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. What? But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through the righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, let's talk about this and let's break this up. Therefore, all these things that we've talked about, we've been now brought into this family. We now have peace because we know that we are God's covenant people. We're in this position. Therefore, just as sin, therefore get a hold of this. And he's going to talk about Adam and Christ. God called Abraham. Well, let me ask you this. How was God going to undo the sin of Adam? Who did God call on to undo the sin of Adam? Well, we're saying Jesus, but before Jesus, who did God call on to undo the sin? Of Adam. Who did God make a covenant with? With Abraham. God called on Abraham to undo the sin of Adam. Now, if you were to talk to the Jews and say, who did God call to undo the sin of Adam? They would say Moses and the bringing of the law. And Paul's saying, no, no, that, that doesn't work. You can't bring that because sin was present throughout that time and the law did not deal with it. God chose Abraham to deal with that. He is the covenant people where there, even though there was sin from Adam to Abraham, God called him to deal with that. And so that is who he used or or called on to deal with those things. The Jew would say it was through the law, through Moses. Paul says that sin was there before the law. Before the law, there was still sin. And God was dealing with it before the law came into being. And what he wants to say at this point, as Adam, so in Christ. But he can't do that right off the bat because there are some things that he needs to make clear ahead of time. 
And so, as he says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, it's like he's wanting to say, and then through Christ it all got dealt with. But first he has to back up, and he has to explain how that took place. And again, it starts with Adam falling, but then from Adam and in this fallen world, God brings the promise to Abraham. And so Adam started this, as in Adam, so in Christ, but there's a problem because Christ did not start where Adam started, right? Adam started in a garden, there was no fallen world, Christ starts where Adam finished in a fallen world, so it's not quite the same, and he has to deal with that. Christ started in this fallen world and he had to deal with that. And so Israel was to take on the role to undo the sin of Adam. Israel is here. The covenant with Abraham, as we've been going through Genesis, we saw that they became a people. It was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. That is the nation now that is established. And so God was going to undo the sin of Adam through his people, the nation of Israel, through Adam. And so that's what we see. So Christ is not just like Adam in that sense, because Adam started it all. Christ is picking up where it is. And actually, it's much more to this advantage. He says, before the law was given, sin had been here. Sin was continuing these things. And then we see in verse 18, he goes on. Well, let me back up. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. So we can't compare what Christ did to this one man because he sinned and caused the fall. He had to take the fall for everybody. And so that's the difference that he's talking about where Adam sinned and he led everyone into this fall. Christ had to pick everyone up. And so there's a big difference. And that's why he talks about much more. See, Adam sinned and he led everyone, but he started with himself. Christ starts with everybody and has to pick everybody up and bring them into the place of God. And so it's much more in that case. And that's why he says in verse 18, or verse 16, but the gift followed many trespasses. What is the gift? It's the sacrifice of Christ. The sacrifice of Christ followed many trespasses. How many? Everybody's. All of our trespasses. So Adam just sinned for himself. Christ had to pick up everybody's sin. And so that's why it is much more. In verse 18, he says, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. And so what he's now showing us is that what God intended to happen with Adam, Jesus had to go in and pick up not only for Adam, but for all of humanity. And so it is much more that he's doing. It is not just for himself that he died, but he's dying now for all people. He's doing more than what Adam did. The righteous act, again, is the covenant faithfulness. What is the righteous act? God is fulfilling the promise that he made. How did he fulfill it? He gave himself as the sacrifice on the cross. But this is what he's pointing to. He's saying, I remember the agreement I made with humanity. 
I have intended all along to undo what Adam did, and I wanted to use this people, and I did. How did he use this people? By the one person. Jesus is that person. He is the fulfillment of the nation of Israel. And so we see that righteous act is connected directly to the covenant that he made, not connected to the law, because sin was already here and God had to deal with it and he dealt with it in Abraham. And then that justification is covenant vindication. So when it says here, that righteous act resulted in justification in verse 18. He's saying this covenant faithfulness resulted in covenant vindication. Understand? That problem that took place, I dealt with it here and through here, I have vindicated everyone because of this. That is what he's leading to in verse 12. That's what he was talking about from verse 12. He was leading to this point. And then verses 20 through the conclusion here, he says the law. When he says the law, he's talking about Moses. Okay, The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. So the law came here through Moses. The law came so that the trespass might increase. That sounds kind of bad. Right? It sounds like, well, you gave us the law and it was going to make the trespass increase, but really it has more to do with illuminate, make it clear. When he says increase, it means to be more aware. It's kind of like, you know, when you have something that's lit, you know, lit, lit up. You know, if you had the projector and it was shining, the light is producing the image so that we can see it. The brilliant, the more brilliant the illumines, the more clarity there is in that light. If it's dim, you don't get to see it very well, but the brighter it is, the clearer it shines. Well, the light, the law was meant to be that light that illuminated the problem, the trespass. And so it's kind of framing it so that we can see it. The law is there so that we could understand the condition that we are in. It's there to help us to see it. So the law was not brought in to redeem, but to make known. And again, Paul is talking to the Jewish Christians who are holding on to their law. We've been circumcised, we keep the Sabbath, we follow these traditions, we are justified before God, we have this as our place. And Paul is dealing with that saying, no, that's not right. The law was there just to let you know your condition. It wasn't there to redeem you. In fact, it couldn't redeem you. And that's why he says that so that just as a sin reigned in death, How did sin reign in death? Well, we saw we were sinners because the law let us know and it led us to death. And then he gives the two other words in verse 21, so also grace might reign through righteousness. So sin, our inability to walk with God, our failing to meet the standard led to death, but the grace that was shown through Jesus Christ has brought us into the right standing to bring eternal life. 
And eternal life doesn't mean life that goes on and on and on and on. It is the life of the new age which is brought in through Christ. It is the life of the age to come. It is the life that God has intended from the beginning. It is God's life given to his people, restored, brought back into the proper place. The glory of God has now been given through the person of Jesus Christ and through Christ we get to enjoy that position because we are in him. And so this is the first phase of Paul's helping us to understand more fully what he's trying to get to. To recognize where we are because of Jesus Christ. Up to this point, he's been telling them of where they were. Now he's telling us where we are. This is, was the condition you were in. This is now the condition you are in because of Jesus. You are in Christ and it has been done through the person of Jesus. And so he's bringing about this hope and it just is going to build and build and he's going to give some little illustrations to help us understand it more fully and then he's going to end on just a very kind of climactic place in chapter 8 and then he's going to answer some more questions in chapter 9. But maybe you have some questions in chapter 5. Are there any questions in just some of the things that we've gone over here tonight? Things that maybe I've gone through, you didn't quite understand. Well, it, it doesn't mean like we think a year and then there's another year and then another year and another year. It has to do with the type of life that God has given. So it's not saying that there you don't live on and on and on because the life that God has is ongoing, but it has to do with the quality of the type of life that God meant, not longevity. Okay. Yeah, no, that's important. So it's the life that is connected to the age that God has called us to be in and the position that he's wanting us to be in. Any other questions? No? Okay. We'll read chapter 6 next week and let's pray and we'll enjoy some cake and celebrate some birthdays. Okay. Father, again, you have done so much, how can we even begin to express it? And, and it seems as if Paul cannot express it without building it up more and more and more. He, he is wanting us to grasp hold of exactly what has taken place and who this Jesus is and what is ours in him. And Father, how you have brought us to back into a position that you have created us for. And Lord, with that knowledge should bring an overwhelming sense of thankfulness as well as responsibility. And they are to go hand in hand. We are not supposed to be overwhelmed with a burden, but we are supposed to be overwhelmed with the peace that you've given us, with the love that you have put in our hearts that is now going to flow from us to you and to the world around us. And Lord, that is our responsibility. You have given us the glory that was given to Adam through Jesus Christ. We now stand in a position 
that we are to have dominion over the world, but we are doing it in Christ. And as you have given him life, he has given us life. And even as you have used him, now you are desiring to use us to be his voice, his work, his body. And so help us to understand all this means. It's not taking a position we can boast in what we do, is boast in what you have done. We are grateful for the work that you've done on our behalf. And we take the position humbly, gratefully, but responsibly. And help us to recognize those truths and to live them out in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.